We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Special with your host, Mark Cole. I would like to be joined yet again by Norman Riley. Norman, how are we doing? Um, very well, Mark. Thanks, mate. Good to be talking with you again. <laughs> well, it was good because um, a couple of weeks ago we did the the first sort of um, unpopular uh, opinion podcast, and it was I was delighted to see the amount of feedback we got on, especially on uh, social media. Um, a lot, lot of people enjoying what we did, which is always good, good to hear. Um, so we thought we'd do, we'd do another one. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a twist because it's going to be um, based on managers only today, um, primarily Kevin Keegan and Kenny Daglish. So. The listeners can probably guess where this is going to go. But uh, starting with Kevin Keegan, um, obviously this week he's been linked with an ambassador role to come back to the club. But um, we'll save that for another podcast. But um, looking back at Kevin Keegan's time at Newcastle, obviously you know as well as I do, he's absolutely adored by the both of us and thousands and thousands of others. Um, his time at Newcastle as a manager, particularly the first period, was nothing but you know a joyous occasion as far as I'm concerned. But it did come with a few controversial moments. Um, and we're going to discuss a few of them that I've picked out. Um, starting with um, when he first come to the club as a manager in, what, February 1992? Mm-hmm. Um, just to give a little bit of background, he had 16 games to save us from relegation to the third division for the first time. And ultimately, it would have been a financial disaster, it goes without saying. But after seven games, Swindon Town at home, we beat them 3-1, and Kevin Keegan walked. Um, now, at the time, he put it down to the fact that he believed um, it wasn't like it was said in the brochure to quote him, because John Hall hadn't given the money to start um, rebuilding, the, rebuilding the team and make sure we would survive. What, what, what are your recollections of that, Norman? And, and essentially, do you think he was he was right to do that at the time? Knowing fine well that John Hall had put his faith in Keegan, and obviously at the time we were hanging on his every word. Do you think he was right to do that? Really tough question, mate. Um, if I'm right in remembering, and, and stop me if uh, tell me if you think I'm wrong, did we get Kilkleinen on loan initially, and he Keegan wanted to make the deal permanent, and um, right. Hall said no, and I think. Um, Keegan, look, I love Kevin Keegan. You know, you love Kevin Keegan. He's the, the talk of this ambassadorial role. I, the, the moment I heard it, I started just, you know, it just started 
Keegan, Keegan. That was the first thing I came in to hear. And then, and then, E-I-E-I-E-I-O, you know, E-I-E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and the second time that he came back to the club, um, his manager the second time, the same kind of reaction happened. Like Literally, the hair stand up in my arms when Kevin Keegan's connected to Newcastle and linked with Newcastle. Yeah. Um, but um, this this particular occasion, um, it, it kind of, I suppose, turned out to be indicative of how Keegan reacts at times. And we've, we saw it subsequently in his role as a manager at Newcastle, um, at England, at Man City to a certain extent. And he's and, and again, I suppose Newcastle the second time around as manager, when he's made promises, he holds people to them, which, I, you know, is a very admirable quality, obviously. Um, um, you know, but we all know life doesn't work out like that. Your employer tells you one thing, and then a few months later, it completely changes. That That is... That does seem to be the way, whereas a lot of people just go, well, you know what, somebody's told me something, they've lied about it, they've changed their mind, things have changed. I'm just going to get on with the kind of thing. Keegan does not um, take that attitude at all. And he is like, you told me this, you're not promising me it, then basically to hell with you. And as I say, I really admire it. And I can completely see why he did it after the game against Swindon. I suppose at that particular point, Keegan may have thought, well, if I'm not getting what I want to keep the side up and they get relegated, that's not going to reflect bad, badly on the board. It's going to reflect badly on me because I'm the team that ultimately, I'm the manager who ultimately took Newcastle down. So I can, yeah. see, so I can see why he did it um, on a personal level. However, however, that particular moment in time, it wasn't the time to take things on a personal level, I guess. And you think, well, maybe for the team he could have just said all right then I'm, I'm still going to stay but then I'll walk pre-season if I keep them up and but then you flip it around and you think well actually by leaving by sorry by threatening to leave um I think did McDermott pull him over on the side of a road maybe to chat with him um uh, further further down the um, down the M1 yeah and, you know and, and you think well actually I suppose by doing that it did kind of jeweled Hall into action Hall panicked and then ultimately gave him what he wants so it's really really difficult um Good instinct, mate. I would probably back Keegan most of the time because I like him as a person. And I think, actually, he has got the courage to do what a lot of us won't do. You just stand up to higher authorities without giving a shit. I, I, must, I must admit, I mean, if you look at the, the stats, he had won uh, four of his first seven uh, in charge. We moved up the table, granted, not away from the celebration. Uh, on the relegation to uh, stop worrying, but we started moving away. And uh, the ironic thing is, is he was persuaded to stay. You come back, and then we lost five of the following seven. So we're right <laughs> amongst again, again. So it, it, it must have had some sort of un, you know unsettlement amongst mm-hmm. the team and the club. But he, he got his wish. He got killed. Klein. She had already um, had already signed, and um, you know. Thankfully, it, it turned out okay in the end. But I, I agree with that one. I, I do think he was right to stand up to the board. Um, and ultimately, you could say that was a, a sign of things to come because every time he can identify a player or wanted improvements, um, John Hall backed him. So I, I definitely, definitely agree with you on that one. Um, moving on to the next point. I mean, controversial or not controversial, probably a harsh word to describe this one, but I'm going to talk about the, the, the sales of um, a certain David Kelly and Gavin Peacock. Now, different circumstances. Um, we had romped the league uh, pretty much. It did a little bit uh, uncertain towards the end, but we, we went up in style with five victories, and obviously that 7-1 win against Leicester. Um, 
at the point at the, at the point of promotion, he, he was out of favour, wasn't he? He had um, had got injured in February, and uh, and then obviously Andy Cole come in, he couldn't get his place back. But when you look at uh, when you look at David Kelly and Peacock's impact for um, Newcastle that season and under under Keegan, um, since he, he got the got the, uh, the job, they scored sixty one goals between them. You know. 61 goals in, in the, the period of Kevin Keegan's management. That's that's pretty pretty impressive. Um, I suppose my point being, um, Peacock was more for personal reasons. Should he have should he have sort of stood his ground in a way and try to work with Peacock and let him commute from from you know from London where he needed to be, um, or was he simply right to let him go and pay for it was at a cup price fee? And what about David Kelly? Was he right to sort of let him go without much of a fight, I'm led to believe? Well, Peacock, I absolutely love Peacock as a player. I think um, obviously me and you being um, similar ages and kind of starting to watch Newcastle in, you know, pretty bad times. Peacock and Kelly were like kind of beacons of light um, during those dark days, weren't they? They were both fantastic players. I mean, really, really good players. Um and to see them both leave was really, it was a really sad, you know, there were two really sad moments. The Peacock one, now, I, as we say, you know, we know it was his, I think it was his son, Jacob, was born with, um, did he, was he born with some problem with his arm, I think? And he had, yes. to, be next, he had to be next to a, a, a particular hospital in London, I think. And obviously Peacock's a Londoner himself and he wanted to be, he wanted to be um, back, back near his family. Mm. So I, I don't... I don't know if Keegan, you know, tried to tempt him to stay, you know, basically with the kind of caveat, you can go down to London anytime you want, regardless. If you need to do it, you can. Um, I don't know if he did that, but even then, you know, I think Keegan, he's very much a family-oriented man, isn't yeah. he? Um, and I think that probably played a huge part in his decision. And I think ultimately it was a very honourable thing that Keegan did. And it kind of just shows the kind of gravitas of him as a person. Um, and as much as I would love to have kept Peacock, I think he would have been very, very unhappy and very unsettled and ultimately would have gone in anyways. And he may have gone under a kind of darker cloud. You know, he could have fallen out with the fans because his performances weren't weren't as good as what they had been on the pitch. Um, you know, Keegan might have got annoyed with him by being in the training ground, but not really being there in a mental sense. So I think he went when he was very much um, loved widely by management and by by the fans. And, and, and obviously, you know, he came back to St. James's Park. He scored. He didn't even celebrate. He, he kind of held the the respect and the affection of fans um, for years afterwards. Uh, so on that one, I agree with Keegan. The Kelly one, I think I think it was a mistake selling them. And obviously, hindsight, you know, makes everything a lot easier. But you think that we got into the Premier League and all of a sudden Beardsley gets his jaw smashed in and yeah, yeah. we're left with like Alex Matthew and the emergency sign of Malcolm Allen. Now, Malcolm Allen himself was always injury prone. And needless to say, he went and got injured pretty much straight away. Kelly would have had his chance in the Premier League. And I think in the system that Keegan played, Kelly would have been an excellent player. I mean, the thing is with David Kelly, what you know he might not have had in terms of the natural ability of Peter Beardsley, in terms of sheer work rate and determination, you know, I struggle to name five players who worked harder than them on the football pitch. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And I would love for him to have stayed. But I suppose the conversation probably went along the lines of, will I be playing regularly? Keegan, no. Well, I don't want to play anymore. And, and obviously he goes to Wolves and Wolves is... You know, that's where he's from, isn't he? He's from the Midlands. So I suppose he gets that opportunity again. I don't know if he was a, a Wolves fan as a boy. I know that he's from, 
I think he's from West Bromwich. He was um, a West, he's a West Brom supporter. West Brom, so he went, oh God, that's a big one. Then he went to, he played for, he's a West Brom supporter who played for Wolves and he was a hero at Newcastle and he played for Sunderland. Fair play. Yeah. Um, he's brave. But I think, I think, I think you've um, stole me thunder in a way because um, in uh, Martin Hardy's book, uh, Touching Distance, one of the first chapters focuses on David Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that the conversation pretty much went, as you've just said there, you know, Egan said, uh, look, I can't guarantee you uh, first team football. Um, Kelly went, OK, who, who's coming in? He went, well, it's Peter Piazzi. And he went, well, I've got no chance, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kelly, again, it, the same happened at Leicester when uh, Brian Little was a manager and he knew he wasn't going to be a first team regular. Um he, he wanted to move and, you know, he nearly signed for Sunderland, but fortunately for us, he signed for Newcastle. And um, he, Kelly had made it clear, all he wanted to do was play football. He wasn't willing to sit around and uh, pick up his wages. He wanted to play football. It's a short career. Um, so I think, in hindsight, you're definitely right. You know, we bought in Alex Matthew as well, who was a, a super sub, shall we say, but he never, ever looked anywhere near getting that uh, getting that second strike and roll, simply because of Colin, Colin Piazzi's dominance. But but you're definitely right. When, when you think that we sold Kelly for, what, 700000 or something? Mm-hmm. We bought, we bought Matthews for nigh on 300,000, something like that. You know, you, you look at it from a point of view of, okay, was Kelly a better striker than Matthew? For me, 100% better. Uh, was he better than Malcolm Allen? Well, Malcolm Allen was a, a busy little player. He, he came in as, uh, initially as a centre forward and was pushed out on the left when uh, Nikos Papavasilou was going to be no good. And, and Malcolm, Malcolm Allen was a de- decent player. I, I like Malcolm Allen. As you see, he got injured and unfortunately for him, his career never really recovered. Um, but but yeah, I, I think 100% agree with, with Peacock. Um, with Kelly, I, I do think Keegan could have handled that a bit better and made sure he was given a chance or made sure he was made to feel uh, more important. Can I add to that, Mark? I'll tell you what I'll add to that. Um, Kelly, if you look at his career and how it panned out after Newcastle and how it was prior to Newcastle, I think he'd only played in the top flight one season before he was at Newcastle. And that was yeah. for West Ham. He banged in a load of goals for Walsall when they got promoted yeah. from, I think, the old third division to second. He went to West Ham. He played in a struggling side, admittedly, but he didn't set like you know he didn't kind of set the the league on fire. Then I think he only scored about six goals in, in you know thirty odd games, and it didn't work out for him. And he obviously went back down the division, and his record in the lower divisions was fantastic. And you know, and you look at him, post Newcastle, um, Tranmere, Sunderland, um, played for Sunderland in the Premier League. But I think again he was. By this point, I think Peter Reid had him playing out wide, and he only got about three goals. Right, yeah. um, so you know, maybe on a on a level, Kelly kind of knew deep down himself that he maybe wasn't quite up to the Premier League and where Newcastle were heading at that particular point. And maybe maybe that played a factor in it. It would be, it would be great to ask him about it actually. Um, right, I would love to see him stay, but at the same time, I think there were probably quite a few reasons that it, it didn't quite pan out like that. Fantastic, mate. Fantastic. Moving on, the same season. Um, I think we've discussed this before. Um, it was clearly obvious that Keegan never really found his uh, what we were calling his number one over the over the time he was at Newcastle as manager. Um, Pav made a howler in a cup game at home to Notts County, if you remember. Mark Draper took a, a free kick and Pav sort of caught it, dropped it, and shoved it in the net. And that, that that was it. That was it for him at that point. Mike Cooper came in from Liverpool. Now, when you sign Liverpool's reserve goalkeeper. You've got to think that they're going to be good, you know. And we've, we've paid over half a million for them. And you know, when you, when you look at the facts, you know, he he, he um, 
kept a clean sheet in five of his first eight games for the club. Um, it, it coincided with the fact that we marched up the table, went from 12th or 13th, right up with the top four. Um, and things were really, really looking up. We're starting to turn draws into victories. Cole and Piazzi were scoring. And then it just seemed to me as if in the, in the turn of the year, things just started to get um, a, little, a little bit different, shall we say, for Huber. Starting with, uh, we played Southampton, if you recall. Matt Letizia took a free kick. Um hit the Gallagher end, and Hooper didn't even move. And then the following week, we played Luton in the Cup, and he was beaten from about 20 yards from uh, the name fails me now, but the Luton player. And then at that point, you could sense, I wouldn't say the word fickle, but Newcastle supporters started questioning Hooper's ability. And Keegan had a go to support us. So I suppose the question to you is, was he right to question the supporters? Because he did turn around at one stage and say, if it doesn't stop, I'll walk. You did, you, you know, tongue in cheek or just a look, he's my signing, you've got to trust me on this. Um, at that point, before the uh, before we went to Wimbledon, um, he, 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 you know, he was questioning the supporters. So at that point, before following a couple of games, was he right, Norman, to have a go back at us? I mean, I can see why he did it, because what he's doing is he's making a public declaration of support for Hooper, which is obviously intended to build up Hooper's confidence. Um, yeah. But again, again it, it ties into Keegan's kind of reactionary uh, personality. And I think a lot of the time we saw, you know, a lot of the things that he says, he says them on the spur of the moment without kind of thinking them through. You know, you, you think of the, the title season. Um, I'm, I say the title season, we didn't win the title, but it's still referred to as the title season, right? 95-96. Um, you think of how Ferguson just played that kind of psychological warfare constantly. And Keegan, you know, after the Leeds game, um, when he came out with the, I, love, I would love it, I would love it. That was very reactionary. And as, yeah. much, as much as on a personal level, I loved it because, again, it shows, it shows kind of who he is. You know, he's, he's real. And I, and I love that about him. There are certain times when that is going to backfire on you in, in football. And I think the criticism of the Newcastle fans... Um, the way that he did it um, was probably not the, the way that I would like to see him do it. I can completely understand the, the desire to support your goalkeeper, your player, publicly, but I think he handled it wrong. And I think that's that is just what you'll get with that's what you get with Keegan. There are occasions where you know he would react, and afterwards you think, oh mate, why did you react like that? I, I understand, I understand the point you're trying to make. It's just the delivery of it could have been a bit more measured, um, given right. you know, given that we're in kind of top flight football. But um, in terms of Hooper himself, I mean, I think the signing was a mistake. I think Hooper was a terrible goalkeeper before he even got to Newcastle. And yes, he was Liverpool's reserve goalkeeper during most of the 80s when they were winning trophies, but he barely played. And you have to think to yourself, why is he still at the club where he's barely playing? Um, why is he not going out and wanting to get regular football? And he came to Newcastle and you mentioned those long-range shots that he had issues with. He always looked bulky. He, all, yeah. he never looked in shape. Um, and I thought he was an awful keeper. And he was he was what we used to call. You remember what my kids used to call him Butterfingers. Um, yeah. And in the yeah. first part, the first one I remember calling Butterfingers was Gary Bailey, who played for Man United. And Hooper, Hooper yeah. was very much of that ilk. And I thought, um, I just thought the signing was a massive mistake. Um, so yeah, the, the way Keegan defended him probably erroneous um, and could have been done better. But I understand mm-hmm. the, the logic behind it. However, the actual signing of Hooper, I think, was just an atrocious signing from day one. Totally agree with everything you've said there, to be honest, Norman. Totally agree. I mean, the fact remains that two games later, we, we got knocked out of the cup at Luton and Hooper made a blunder to let in John Harson for the opener. Good and then we went to Wimbledon 
and we got beat 4-2. And in that game, he literally was rooted at the spot. His confidence was shot. But whether he's going to blame the fans or not, but he could not handle Wimbledon's, you know, long ball tactics, big flash the bash up front. He, he couldn't he couldn't handle it. And that was probably the worst performance of the season. We got beat 4-2. I was there. Yeah, I was down there as well, mate. I remember, I remember it well. And, right. and the worst thing is, for Keegan, in a sense, was after that game, that was it. He dropped them and Pav come back. And you could say Pav never looked back for a couple of seasons, you know. No, he finished. Um, he had a brilliant. And I've got, I've got, a, I've got a little anecdote about that uh, away performance at Wimbledon, mate, which right? uh, some listeners may have already heard on uh, as it was when it was last season. So apologies if you have. Uh, but I well, obviously I was 16 at the time. I think we would have been 16, maybe. Um, couple of penalties on Beardley, as you remember. We got the uh, night yeah. coach. Uh, we got the night coach on the Friday night from Gallagher. Um, and there was a National Express. We got got London at like half six in the morning, whatever it was. Um, on the cans, pretty much straight straight away all day um, after the match on the drink. And then a couple of lads, there were four of us, one of them went missing, we started searching for him, we split up, ended up me and one of the lads, missed the last bus back, uh, the midnight coach back in Newcastle. So ended up sleeping in the middle of February, I think it was February, in a shopping centre at Victoria, Green Line Station, absolutely freezing through the night in London, 16 years old on the streets. It was wow. a, a horrific, an horrific experience and we, we didn't have any money as well, no money. We got let on the coach the next day. It was um, probably one of the worst 24 hours of my life. But hey, you know what, mate? That's football, eh? <laughs> That's, uh, mine was a little bit less uh, as dramatic as that. But a little little, little start to add to your, uh, your story there. Did you know, mate, that was the last time Newcastle played an all-British team? I did not. Did we have white shorts on that day as well? We did. Um, yeah, we, we played an all-British side that day. Wow. Um, Alex Matthew, come on, obviously he's a jock. And uh, Mike Cooper obviously was was in goal. Born, I think he was born in Bristol, but didn't he get capped for Wales? Or have I just totally made that up? I, I don't know. He was definitely West Country, mate, so you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Um, that was last time we played an all-British team and the subs were on top of that. I've come in and then we went international uh, during the summer, which takes me on to my next point. Briefly, Norman, mm-hmm. Philip Albert, Mark Hottega, signed basically on the back of well, Hottegan, in, in, in a respect, because of his uh, performances for Switzerland, the, the 1994 World Cup. Albert had been around a little bit longer and was coming a little bit more in the public domain. But bear in mind, Hottegan was really coming in to replace Steve Watson, who was fantastic at fullback the previous season. And you could see Albert was coming in um, for possibly Steve Howie, who was injury prone at that point, but also possibly for Barry Venison, who had replaced. Howie and then Kevin Scott when he was sort of Spurs for the majority of the season at, at, at centre half. So at that point, was Keegan right to look at replacing a consistent fullback and a fantastic centre half? Replacing possibly not. Competition definitely brought um, yeah. as a transfer. He did replace him, didn't he? Brought in. I mean, I suppose we have to take it into context as well. This was the time when a lot of teams in the Premier League were going out and buying players from overseas. And there was this kind of this wave, wasn't it? This this kind of wave of just people thinking, oh well, I can get someone abroad and it'll be, it'll be absolutely brilliant. And don't get me wrong, I mean, Albert I thought was a fantastic centre off. He was a great servant. We know that. Um, Hotega, as you see, was really good for Switzerland in the World Cup. I just remember him. I think in the first game that they had a one-all draw against the USA. The opening, not the opening game, yeah. but one of the first first games. Opening game was Bolivia Germany, wasn't it? Um, and he um, he was bombing, bombing up and down the right, just bombing and bombing. I thought, and I actually remember thinking at the time, God, this kid can play. And when yeah. we said I was really, really happy. But hindsight again, um, Watson 
I thought was a brilliant player. I really rated Steve Watson. I thought for a fullback, he hit that, especially at that time, he had everything. He was, he was, he was quick. He was powerful. Um, he could, you know, he, he could just he could, players would bounce off him. He was, he was. I, I really rated him. Um, how he like you see injury prone, but in England international, a really good player. Um, so competition, yes, replacing I think was probably a bit harsh. Although I will say, Mark Hodgkin did give me, you know, one of the best um, nights of my life as a Newcastle fan when he scored that free kick away at uh, Blackburn. Ah yes, yes, we will, we will come to that in a moment. But I, I, again, I, I can't disagree. I, I think. You know these controversial moments. I'm probably uh, scraping the barrel in one sense, but it's 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 interesting because you look at Newcastle's history under Kevin Keegan, and there was points where I looked and go, hmm, was it wasn't was he right to do this? Was he right to do that? But I think you've you summarised that perfectly. To be honest, I think one of the reasons why I did sort of bring in the, the conversations because Watson and Venison will make my all-time Newcastle eleven. Um, but when you look at it, ultimately Hotniger and Albert were brought in. You could see his competition broke replacement. So. Well, can, I, can I throw one at you, mate? Go on then. Yes, one by you. Selling Scott Sellers was a massive mistake. Um. Yes, but Sellers um, admitted to me when when I interviewed him last year, he admitted to me similar to David Kelly. Um, he wasn't guaranteed um, first team football. Keegan actually offered him a pay rise to stay as a as a sub, and he knocked it back. He wanted first team football. So get your point. Keegan again, is this one of these ones where Keegan should have done more to keep him? Um, because when you think about it, when Ginola did get injured or dropped, which to be fair was few and far between, um, who did we really have to come in on the left-hand side? It was more oh. of a Robbie Elliott, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so so t- to answer your question, I think it suited both parties. But again, should, Keegan probably should have done more to keep, keep Salas. Well, I think that's an interesting thing, I think, mate, as well, is that, you know, you look at the game back then, you look at how it is new, and I think players are, because squad rotation is so heavy now, um, I think, you know, you had, you had a player like David Ginola and Scott Sellers, you had those two players in your squad, and you were kind of the, the top end of the table as we were, you'd probably have a better chance of keeping them, because obviously the way rotation is, you know, you'd be playing, most players now are kind of happy playing sort of 50-60% of the games, as opposed to wanting to be in, in the side every match, which... Even then, what twenty odd years ago, you know, as a player, you wanted to be in the side every single time, didn't you? Whereas now, I think it's just more widely accepted that maybe, maybe you'll play the league game on the Saturday. You won't be playing the cup game on the Wednesday. You might be out of the side, depending on the opposition that you're playing against. You know, whatever, whatever tactics or formations are being played. Whereas back then, it was literally four four two play every match, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agreed. I mean, basing it on sales, um, which takes us to the next point, probably the most. Well, arguably the most controversial transfer in uh, Premier League history. You know, you could put Cantona from Leeds to Man United up there as well. But um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any, many more, if any. But Andy Cole, you know, he had went off the boil a bit. There was rumours that he was uh, unhappy. Um, Keegan, you know, had managed us towards the, the back end of the year. We were on a bit of a, a, a poor form. You know, I think we had only won one in about 11 games. We crashed out, crashed out of the League Cup. Um, we had Drew with Blackburn, who were challenging for the title. Um, and he ended up selling Andy Cole. Now, before I let you talk, there was rumours that he wanted Les Ferdinand to come in and play with um, Andy Cole. That was eventually his plan. Where Peter Piazzi would have fitted into that, we do not know. But that was his plan. Now, bearing in mind, 
Um, Alex Matthew still was nowhere near going to be a first-team regular. Paul Kitson had come in from Derby County for something like 2.2 million. And he was nowhere near an Andy Cole's level. As tidy as a player he was, he was going to hold the ball up. But he was never going to replace, replace Andy Cole as our number one striker. Now, in my opinion, and I'll, I still say this, even after we had the, the, joyous, the, the joys of having Les Ferdinand, I believe Keegan was wrong to sell Andy Cole. And the reason he was wrong to sell Andy Cole is because, A, we didn't have a replacement. And, B, apart from our home form, the season pretty much fell apart that season. You know, our last hope was the FA Cup, and we went out meekly at Everton. Um, and when all was said and done, Leeds gathered momentum and won a hell of a lot of games towards the end of the season. And we were pipped for the last UEFA Cup spot. So, so for me, it backfired. Granted, we've got Keith Gillespie, who went on to have a... For me, he had a good career at Newcastle. Um, but for me, Andy Cole, the sale was wrong. What's your thoughts, Norman? Well, yeah, I'm going to try and, um, you know, disagree with you just for the sake of, um, you know, entertainment. Um, despite, <laughs> the fact that, despite the fact that deep down, I probably agree with you. Um, right. What I will say, you've already mentioned that Cole had pretty much gone off the boil. You look at his league record the season before when he broke, you know, he broke the, the season scoring record. Yeah. Um, he, was, he was averaging a goal. He was virtually averaging, averaging a goal every game, every 1.2 games or whatever it was. Um, 94-95, um, when he left, he had 15-27, and 27, which sounds fantastic still. You know, still want more than one and two. And as you see, he had the problems with injuries. But in the league, 9-18, one and two compared to the season before, it wasn't anywhere near as good. Um, I think the partnership with Beardsley, the fluidity wasn't there. And again, that might have been because Cole had been carrying, carrying an injury. Um, mm-hmm. And... The other things you have to take into account as well is that, you know, this was a record British transfer at the time. That carries a lot of weight. When a club comes in with a record bid, you know, like a British record transfer bid, any club's going to think think of it. And I suppose I can kind of see why Keegan thought, well, if I can get, you know, they're coming in with this amount for coal, I can bring Les in for this amount. It turns out that actually Ferdinand came up with the same amount. Yeah. Yeah. As you as you mentioned, Gillespie came in and he was in, he was massively influential the following season. And as you mentioned on the previous part, if he hadn't got injured, the title may have been ours. Um, so so uh, you know you look at you look at the transformation in the side within one season from ninety four ninety five to ninety five ninety six. We improved and we improved markedly, going from as you see a side that was out of form and ended up finishing sixth to a side that nearly won the title and was probably pipped for the title because of the injury to a player who came as a part of a make for the Cole deal. So I completely understand the logic behind it. Obviously, in the short term, at that precise moment in time, we didn't have a replacement there for him, there and then, so it looked bad. But on reflection, it probably wasn't a bad deal, and I can definitely see why Keegan done it. And also, factoring even slightly longer term, if Cole had stayed... Ferdinand would come in. Would Shearer have ever have arrived? Good, good point. Which, which, to be honest, is a little question for you. In your all-time eleven, who were your two strikers? Shearer and Ferdinand. See, I would go for Shearer and Cole because for me, Cole, for that period between the end of ninety-two, ninety-three, and you know the following season, and then the early part, you know, the, the first fifteen or sixteen games, he was phenomenal. He was the best right I've ever seen, as far as I'm concerned. All rounds, centre forward, nowhere near Alan Shearer's level, but actual clinicalness, scoring goals. Yeah, fair play. He missed, he missed, he missed a lot, but nine times out of ten, he would, he would score. And 
cool with Pip Ferdinand, which is remarkable because I watched a, 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 a bit of a, um, a series on Premier League strikers on Sky, and it was Ferdinand's term, and I, I forgot how many political goals he scored. Oh. Um, phenomenal in the air, strong, you know. But but hey, you, if you're going Ferdinand and Chira, I'm going uh, Cohn and Chira, which takes me on to the next one. We discussed 95, 96 in the last podcast, and the consensus really was you went for David Batty. The sign of David Batty changed, um, changed our you know, strategy, and but that's why we ultimately lost the league. And I went for the man, Keith Gillespie, not recalling him. Um, it's unsettled the balance. But moving on, signed Alan Shearer. Now, <laughs> we, we've had a chat about this before. I personally think it was... Probably the right time to sign Alan Shearer because there was no one better. But I'm going to be a hypocrite here. Did we really need a centre forward? For me, there was rumours of we well, were trying to get uh, Tony Adams or Colin Henry. Um, Keegan still hadn't found his number one goalkeeper. <sighs> was Keegan right to go and get Shearer because he was the best striker out there? Or should he have focused elsewhere in the team where ultimately? fell short the previous season, Norman. What's, what's your thoughts on that one? It's a really good question because obviously you look at Shearer at Newcastle and there is absolutely no way on earth that can ever be seen as a deal that can be regretted in any way at all. But if a specific moment in time, I can kind of see the logic in what you're saying. Um, however, I guess we can look at a few things. The defensive record as we've mentioned before, wasn't actually that bad. We still had the second, I think we still conceded the second or the third least amount of goals that season in the Premier League. Um, so the defence wasn't as, it, it didn't really make much of a change. It probably needed a leader at the back. And as you mentioned there, Colin, Colin Henry or Tony Adams, you know, they're the kind of players who can make the difference when it comes to the pressure games um, of getting getting you over the line. So I can get, get the logic. Um, but the way I would look at it is, is that if Keegan hadn't gone out and signed Shearer, right? Oh, the biggest rivals at the time, the biggest rival, this was just before Wenger got to Arsenal. It was Newcastle Manu, wasn't it? It was Newcastle Manu were going to win the title. Simple as that. Blackburn were fading at this point. Dalgleish had left and, you know, the wheels were coming off him with Walker and the money and everything like that. So it was Newcastle Man United. Man United already had Andy Cole. Um, and if Shearer hadn't gone to Newcastle, if Keegan hadn't put, hadn't put that bid in for him, it's highly likely he would have gone to Man United. There was rumours he might have gone to Barcelona, but I just don't think that would have happened. I yeah. think Ferguson, Ferguson would have got him for Man U. And if Shearer had gone to Man United, regardless of who he might have signed at the back, I think it would have just been that they would have absolutely tanked the title that season. Um, so I think Keegan's logic may have been, well, the fans will love this. We've yeah. lost the title. This will lift everyone because obviously it was a dev- massively devastating blow losing the title. Um, and it did lift the fans. I mean, we saw 15,000 or whatever it was turn up when he signed. He was the best player in the world at the time. No two ways about it. Um and he was the, the player who, as I say, he stopped Man U getting better and he made us a lot better. So I can definitely say it. So for me, I get your argument, but I think signing Shearer was, on reflection, still the right thing to do. So I'll throw this at you. Mm-hmm. When he came in, there was obviously the battle for the number nine shirt. He insisted he wanted that. Um, so they're not going to affect what that is. It, it upset Les Ferdinand, who, you know, he was he's made it clear. He was like, well, I'm your number one striker. And it was sort of forced upon him. Um, and then also they're not going to affect with that is that Lee Clark lost his number 10 shirt which <laughs> which he had held on for about four or five years so he was uh, not happy either but 
Then there was also the penalty duties. Piazzi was was a penalty taker. He was pretty consistent on them. But she had demanded the penalties. He demanded the number nine shirt. And over the course of his, his time at Newcastle, you could see there was a lot of controversy with uh, specific managers. You know, I, I mentioned uh, Ruth Hullett. And we will come to Kenny Daglish and she has influence and friendship with Daglish soon. But do you think that, you know, not, not taking away Shira's ability, the excitement of signing, and ultimately how his career planned out at Newcastle, because no one can ever take that away. It was fantastic. But do you not think with hindsight, a little bit controversy come with the Shira signing? Absolutely, but that always happens when you sign players who are who are that good. You know, the, the greatest players, the greatest players are selfish. You know, they have to be. That's what you know. That that's it's what it's one of the things that makes them as good as they are. You know, you think of someone like Maradona, for example. Every club he would have gone to, he would have taken the penalties, he would have taken the corners, he would have taken the free kicks, he would have been the main man, he would have been the captain, he would have had the number ten shirt. And at the time, you know that that's how football worked out, and to a certain extent, it still does now. I mean, shirt numbers don't come into it as much. You know, when we were a kid, when we played football as kids, you always wanted to be number seven, or you wanted to be number nine, didn't you? Or you wanted to be number ten or number eight. You never wanted to be one of the other numbers, really. Um, and I suppose, you know, I can I can see why the man of the number nine shirt at the time, and also being a Newcastle fan himself, you know, that had that had a lot, a lot of weight. So I, I get it. But in terms of the, you know, how he how he was, as I say, the the, the selfishness it. That's part of the. That's going to be part of the baggage when you're saying players who are who are that good and and okay it may have had a, an unsettling effect in you know some cases but I think overall professional professionals and, and you know you look at someone like Les Ferdinand he probably got annoyed for a little bit and then he was like well you know what I'm still number ten at Newcastle United um Shearer's number nine he's a Geordie it's his club it's fine by me um I think Beardsley with the penalties. You know, this is a player who's coming to the end of his career. Shearer's yeah. 10 years younger than him. He probably thought, well, you know what, fair enough. Um, and, you know, I, I can, again, I can see what you're seeing, you know, upsetting the apple cart and all that. And, you know, almost like a Bertie Big Bollocks coming in. But the thing is, there's been a Bertie Big Bollocks and there's been, like, you know, a world-class player. And Shearer, for all of the demands that he made and made, he could back it up with his talent and with the success on the pitch. So for me, um, don't get me wrong, if I was in the dressing room, I'd think, who's this wanker? For a little bit initially, but then at the moment, the moment that you start seeing him train, the moment you spend time with him on the pitch, and you realise that actually he's just on a completely different level. You know what? Have the penalties, have the number nine shirt, have the armband. I didn't care because you're my team, and that's all that counts. Perfectly put. No, I cannot disagree with anything you've said there, mate. Brilliant. Um, so moving on, uh, final point on Kevin Keegan. Um, obviously, we beat Man U five 0 That was the seventh win in a row, and we're, we're still celebrate that. I mean, we've, we've discussed this before. I don't agree with celebrating it. I, 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 do, I do think it's a little bit small time, something the Mackens would do. But ultimately, it's not often you beat Man United 5 0. It was revenge. It was perfect. I so understand why we do. But ultimately, I, I don't get carried away with it. But following that, we uh, only won one in nine games. We're not at the League Cup at Middlesbrough. And uh, there was strong rumours, which would come to fruition. Now, at this point, we've heard so many different stories, but ultimately, we lost Kevin Keegan. Doesn't matter which version you believe, you know, was was he told that he wasn't uh, going to be given any more money because ultimately he had failed to, you know, get that silverware that we craved and John Hall had backed him, you know, to get. Um, Keegan also said at one point when we beat Tottenham 7 1 that he felt sorry for Jerry Francis. And, um, you know, he felt as if his heart wasn't really in football anymore. 
Um, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what, what his decision was, he, he walked. Now, at the time, I think everyone was absolutely heartbroken. At that time, put yourself in Keegan's shoes. He was, he was basically getting used to promote the PLC. He was, he was given shares and he was given ear eyes. But was he right to walk? Granted, the reasons I've given was he wasn't going to be back financially. He was also told, I've missed, that he was also told he had to make money for the PLC because essentially John Hall had loaned the club money. He hadn't put money in to have. He had loaned club money and he wanted it back. So, in your opinion, Norman, was he right to leave and did he get out at the right time? Um, in my opinion, he wasn't right to leave. On a purely selfish level, he wasn't right to leave because I loved him and um, I was absolutely devastated when he went. Now, look, that season had actually transpired. We had a really good season. Dalglish came in and, you know, he really did sort out the team. You know, I mean, we'll do, we'll do a separate part definitely now on, on Dalglish because there's lots of controversy um, with him. You know, the taking over from, from Keegan was a seismic task and, and he did it really well in the short term initially. Um, but... Keegan leaving, um, I, I wish I wish that he'd stayed until the end of the season. I wish that he'd had a full season with Shearer and Ferdinand up front. You know, you look at we beat Spurs 7-1. We tanked Leeds 3-0 uh, straight after that. We we were coming back into form. After, as you say, the one winning nine, it was kind of by the wayside because we just dismantled those two teams. We got a decent result away at a Charlton in the Cup, even though they were a division lower. They were pushing for promotion. Um, and, you know, we, we were in an all right place. We're in an all right place at that time. And, you know, and I agree with what you're saying on, you know, the fact that he, he maybe felt that he was being used um, as, as the club was going to start floating. But I just wish he'd given it a bit longer. But then again, it goes back to what we're saying at the beginning. It ties into to Keegan's um, reactionary personality. You know, he, he probably had been thinking about leaving for quite a while, but I bet it wasn't like something that he'd been thinking about since the summer of like for three or four months. I bet it was literally, you know, within a, a couple of weeks of the Spurs game. And then I'm just thinking, you know what, I'm done. I'm done now. Um, and that, And that's... That's how Keegan is. Um, so for me, he, he he left he left at the wrong time. I wish he'd stayed until the end of the season. And who knows, mate? I mean, we might have ended up finishing, you know, second or third still. And then the next season would have been the Champions League. And I would have loved to have seen a Kevin Keegan side in the Champions League because obviously we know what happened with Dalglish the following year. We beat Barcelona, but we were absolutely terrible after that. I don't think I don't think if Kevin Keegan had been the manager, and let's just say we had that group, we would have got through that group with Keegan in charge. And some of the bizarre decisions that Dalglish made that summer wouldn't have happened and it would have been a completely different story. I wish he'd stayed. I wish he'd got in the Champions League and I just wish Keegan had had a chance to have a crack in the Champions League and who knows what might have happened after that, mate. You know, we might have picked up a, a League Cup win and that might have been the start of something special. So it was a, yeah, it was a, a really, on a personal level, again, you know, like Keegan, that's the way he is. He did it. But from a fan's perspective, it was a devastating um, blow and it was the wrong thing to do. Well, it, it's it's interesting, and you're right in what you're saying. We have overrun, unfortunately. So the, the Kenny Daglish, um, we can make a podcast in its own right because we've got a hell of a lot to discuss about mm-hmm. Kenny Daglish. And and just to, just to sort of conclude what you've said there, you know, I don't think it mattered who who was going to come in. You know, there was rumours of Bobby Robson. Um, you know, there was rumours of Johan Cruyff. Um, there was obviously Kenny Daglish coming. It would have been hard for anyone coming in to get the fans back up to the level they were feeling when Kevin Keegan was manager, because as we've discussed before, everyone hung on his every word. The trust the man had was just phenomenal. 
the football manager. I've known nothing like it. I've known nothing like it since. You know, but just just to sort of just to sort of confirm Keegan's uh, impact. You know, little, a couple little stats for you, Norman. In 112 home league games that he managed um, in, in, in his time as Newcastle manager, in both spells, who scored 244 goals. Oh. That's 244 goals in 112 home league games. So you could see every game, you were guaranteed to see a couple of goals, you know. And, and also, out of those 112 games, take, take a stab in the dark one. How many do you think we won? 112? I'm going to say we won, like, 82. You're not far off, mate. We won 76. Oof. And we drew 22. So you could say almost 100 out of 112 games, Newcastle didn't lose. I mean, that's spectacular. That is absolutely spectacular. It's phenomenal. And now, factoring as well, he won every derby against Sunderland in his time as a Newcastle manager. I think he won the majority of his games against Middlesbrough. We're going to count them as a derby as well. And... Uh, Unfortunately, mate, the only team who beat Newcastle twice in all that time, you know who? Man United. Man United. The only team to beat us at St. James twice. And uh, obviously that 1-0 game. And it would have been the one when the Hammond were 5-1, wouldn't it? When uh, Amity Five scored for us. Not Amity Five, the other five. That's right. Yeah. So, so just goes to show the impact um, on, on, on Kevin Keegan. And, you know, for once, we didn't want to just talk about him and praise him to the hill because it's been done before. But to be honest, mate, a lot of these controversial moments, and I, I use that as a quote, open quotation there, because to be honest, a lot of them were well justified. I think we've, uh, you know, you, you've made some excellent points going back with me there. And I feel a little bit guilty talking about them in that respect. But oh, yeah, well, let's just see it. Let's just end on the fact that, you know, regardless of how we may we may have tried to bring in a bit of controversy, Keegan, the man for me is, was, is, and always will be an absolute god. Yeah. In, in, in just briefly, Norman, would you welcome him coming back as an ambassador? Oh man, I'm, I'm like I'm start I'm starting to laugh as you've said that. I'm giddy, like the thought of it. I'm giddy with the thought of Keegan being involved in Newcastle again. Yeah. I love the man. For me, I mean, he's just yeah. For me, he's just a, he's a he's a beautiful footballing person for Newcastle United Football Club. Yeah, and just to conclude as well, I know people know this, but Kevin Keegan, but four four players in the England team within two within two years of management. And when you think that Cole was overlooked criminally and Scott Sellers was on the verge of getting called up before he got injured. And bear in mind as well, John Beresford, England B, got called up in the England team, squad, didn't get a game. You know, his impact was absolutely phenomenal. And on that note... Didn't get in the B squad, mate. Sorry, what was that? Did Steve Watson get in the B squad? Yeah, he ended up playing for the under-21s. Right. Yeah, but uh, to be fair, you know, he, he could have been called up. He probably should have been. Um, different, different generation put it this way in the last 10 years you 100% would have been called and probably won 50 caps no, so no. Um, but there you go but uh, we'll leave it there Norman mate we'll come back to uh, our friend Kenny Daglish I'm sure we've got a hell of a lot to talk about uh, him and digest until we're, we'll probably have a cyber fight over the internet but uh, <laughs> for now um, thanks again Norman for your time thanks again to all the listeners who well, we really appreciate the feedback it, it's, it's obviously a difficult time but we appreciate everyone sticking with us uh, true favour putting out podcast out of podcast and it's going to continue for the, for the coming months so feedback always welcome and we hope that uh, these little nostalgia trips keep you entertained but for now Norman thank you very much and listeners you'll hear from us soon again thank you very much Norm cheers
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com